You know, it can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. Invisible struggles like stress and burnout, caregiving for a loved one, or being misunderstood. But insight, awareness, and empathy will help us better see the issues they're dealing with. And that can make us and our companies healthier, too. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. You know success when you see it. Or you think you do the people in the spotlight. But what about those small business masterminds who succeed at making their money work harder? They do that by having a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, which now earns 5% annual percentage yield. Making your money work as hard as you do? That's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. I'm Alex Rodriguez. And I'm Jason Kelly. From Bloomberg, this is The Deal. Each week, you're here in conversation with business icons. This show will explore deal-making across sports, media, and entertainment. That is a harsh lesson in business. Sports is and not uh, as simple you know, I, as bringing a bunch of big names together. I didn't want to do another stomp you out speech. It opened up so many more doors. The show is called The, the deal. deal. Listen to The Deal wherever you get your podcast, And watch on Bloomberg Originals, Bloomberg Television, or BTV+. This is Bloomberg Law with June Grosso from Bloomberg Radio. At 97 years old, former President Jimmy Carter is stepping into a legal fight that puts his landmark Conservation Act in jeopardy. In 1980, ANILCA, the Alaska National Interest Lands Conservation Act, established more than 162,000 square miles of national parklands in the state. And more than 30 years later, Carter remembered how difficult it was to get the law passed. Well, it was a hard-fought battle. Four years from the time I submitted the proposals in May of 1977 until after I was uh, defeated for re in 1980. At the time, environmentalists applauded the law, but many Alaskans did not. And I had to double my Secret Service protection when I went into the state fair area with all the Alaska people there because they were so furious at me because we had passed a NOCA. We were getting ready to pass a NOCA. And so they had a, um, one of those things where you throw baseballs. And uh, they had my picture on one of them and the Ayatollah Khomeini on the other. And nobody wanted to throw at the Ayatollah Khomeini they threw all the baseballs at me. In March, a three-judge panel of the Ninth Circuit upheld a Trump-era land swap that would allow the tiny, isolated town of King Cove to build a road through the Isenbeck National Wildlife Refuge, which more than 200 species from brown bears to Pacific salmon call home. In a rare move for a former president, Carter filed a brief supporting conservationists' request for the full circuit to rehear the case, saying, unless reversed, it would open tens of millions of acres of public lands for adverse development. Joining me is environmental law professor Pat Parento of the Vermont Law School. Pat, it's not often that a former president puts himself in the middle of a legal battle. The reason Jimmy Carter weighed in, I was in D.C. during the debate on what we call ANILCA, the Alaska Lands Bill, which Jimmy Carter famously signed, saving over 100 million acres of pristine wilderness in Alaska. And this road was part of the deal. 
So the deal in Anilka was you weren't going to put this road through the Tongass National Forest. So that's why Carter weighed in and said, wait a minute, you're reneging on the agreement that we reached way back in what, 1978, 1979? So this was part of the grand compromise on the Alaska Lands Bill, and that's why he weighed in the way he did. Do you agree with the argument that if this ruling is allowed to stand, then future secretaries of the interior, future administrations could use this as a precedent to start carving up the land? You know, it creates a loophole, and you have to look at every instance of can you use the loophole to do something that wasn't anticipated by the agreement, you know, and each case is different. But yeah, I mean, anytime you go back and revisit what I think it's fair to say that there was an agreement at that time that the Tongass was going to be left intact. It's the largest, by the way, the largest carbon forest in North America. It's that kind of really unique resource. So, yeah, anytime, you know, you can revisit a deal and open it up for further discussion, that raises the question of whether any deal is ever sacrosanct. It seems like it would be something the Ninth Circuit would take on Banks since it was a two-to-one decision. Yeah, and it was kind of out there from the academic analysis. You know, the people that study that particular road project and its history have written that the Ninth Circuit should. In fact, there's a whole group of law professors, I'm one of them, who signed an amicus brief saying, you really should take another look at this because it goes against the deal that was cut back in the 70s. Tell us a little bit more about why you think the ruling of the three-judge panel was not correct. They didn't give really any deference to the original agreement that this forest was not going to be opened up. I mean, anytime you put a major road into a forest, you change it forever. I mean, you get all kinds of traffic and all the activities that are associated with that. You know, roads introduce invasive species. There's all kinds of things that happen. You know, you access remote areas where there are grizzly bears and wolves, and then there's poaching. And so there's all kinds of negative consequences from roads. It isn't just the road itself. It's what the road brings into the forest. I will say that the native corporations that want this road, they have a legitimate argument that They were due certain kinds of economic incentives as part of the Anilka deal back in the 70s. I'm not sure they got everything that they were entitled to, but whether or not this road is really going to make the big difference for them or not is also in dispute. A better outcome would be look at what these communities that live in this forest area need for economic development and provide it, but don't necessarily conclude a road is the answer to every question. Well, we'll see if the full Ninth Circuit takes the case. Pat, I want to turn now to another long-running environmental dispute in Alaska, that concerning Bristol Bay. The Biden administration has taken a major legal step to protect the Bristol Bay watershed, one of the world's most important salmon fisheries, a step that will likely mean the end of a controversial mining project. Pat, tell us about the environmental importance of Bristol Bay. It's the most pristine salmon watershed, certainly in the United States or the North American continent. You could even argue in the world it supplies 46 percent 
of the sockeye salmon, which is one of the most prized commercial and recreational species of salmon. So, I mean, it's just unmatched. There's really only one ecosystem like this of its kind. Enter Pebble Mine Project. What is it and why has it been so controversial for decades, I guess? Well, it's a major deposit of copper, silver, and other metals that, of course, are much in demand. And, of course, copper is a key element of batteries, which we need for electric vehicles. So one of the arguments in favor of the mine has been, you know, if Biden is serious about moving us in the direction of electric vehicles, you're going to need more copper. And the response to that, I think, has been, well, there's a lot of copper in the world, but there's only one Bristol Bay watershed. But it's an enormous economic resource. The extraction process is pretty dramatic. I mean, you know, this is this is open pit, very deep excavation in an area where there's literally pristine, no roads, no support facilities. You'd have to do all that. You'd have to build railroad, you'd have to build highways, you'd have to build jet ports to get people in and out, helicopter pads and so forth. So it's a lot of money. That's why it's so controversial. And uh, the Pebble Mine Partnership has been fighting it for, I don't know, two decades now. And they show no signs of giving up. They're threatening to go to court. There's no surprise there. So, you know, whenever there's that much money, billions of dollars at stake, you're going to see controversy. There's been opposition from a lot of diverse groups, from Alaska Native communities, from environmentalists, from the fishing industry. It was abandoned under President Obama. Why is there still a fight about it? Yeah, Obama exercised what was called a preemptive veto under Section 404C of the Clean Water Act, which meant um, the uh, Obama administration actually got out in front of the permit process for the mine, and, and there hadn't even been a final mining plan proposed by the company. So there was a lot of litigation over, well, you've jumped the gun here, uh, Obama, and the courts began to you know, intervene, and they said, you violated something called the Federal Advisory Committee Act, and so forth. So it was tangled up in litigation right from the get-go. And then, of course, the Trump administration came in and announced that they were withdrawing the veto. But then it reversed its position famously when Don Trump Jr., who likes to fish in Bristol Bay watershed, said, no, 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 this is a really important resource, Dad. You should not let this mine be built. So then the Trump administration reversed its position, which actually then led the Corps of Engineers to deny a permit for the mine, and then enter the Biden administration, which now, of course, has finally decided we're simply going to designate the Bristol Bay watershed as off limits to not just mining, but to the kind of dredging and filling activity that any kind of mining project would require. Over 2,000 acres of wetlands would have to be destroyed for starters to conduct this mining. So so that's where we are today. The Biden administration has said, we've seen your plan and we're saying no to your plan. And we're basically saying no to any other kind of plan like it in this watershed. And what legal authority are they using? They're using Section 404C of the Clean Water Act, which Congress added in 1972 as a check on the Corps of Engineers authority to permit 
activities that involve disposal of dredge and fill material into the waters of the United States. There's only been 13 of these 404C vetoes issued by EPA over the years, so it's very rarely deployed. I was actually involved in one of them in, in New England involving a veto over a proposed mall development by the Pyramid Mall Company of New York uh, in a place called Attleboro, Massachusetts. So it's a rare form of EPA authority, but the courts have upheld it over and over again, and they've said EPA can use it either before there's a, a permit issued or after a permit is issued or even sometimes years after a permit is issued, if there's still ongoing harm, and EPA is the one who determines, is the level of harm to fisheries, for example, unacceptable? That's the way the law defines it. And courts have said it's really up to EPA to decide what is and isn't acceptable impact on fishery resources. And in the case of Bristol Bay, EPA has said the kind of impact you're talking about with this massive mine is unacceptable. Are they accepting public comments at this point? Yes, it's still a proposed action, not final yet, so it's not even subject to a lawsuit yet. And the, as you mentioned, the, the comments are, are coming in, I think probably you could say overwhelmingly in support of the veto, but not, not universal. You know, the, the congressional delegation in Alaska has always been I mean, they're caught between the mining companies, you know, that want to extract this valuable resource and put some people to work, whether they're Alaskans or not, and the fishery interests and the native corporations, the native people in Alaska that are very, very heavily dependent on the, the Bristol Bay resource. So, you know, the politics of this are really tricky for Senator Murkowski, for example. And, you know, she's come out and, and said, well, we should have really strict limits on whether there should be mining. And, and I'm not in favor of just any kind of mining, but maybe there's some kind of mining that could be done. So that's the nature of the, po the politics of the issue right now. So those comments are coming in. The comment period will close in a month or so, and then EPA will issue a final decision. The final decision is going to be a veto or a prohibition on the mining, and then there'll be litigation over it. So as far as litigation, I mean, both federal and state agencies have found that this would mean irreparable harm to the ecosystem. What does the mining company, you know, Pebble Mine Project, they sue based on what? What would their arguments be? Well, their legal arguments are going to be very difficult, frankly, because there's a Fourth Circuit decision, and that's a conservative circuit, in which the court ruled that Congress has really vested EPA with the final word on whether something is acceptable or not under this 404C veto power. So, so that stands right now as the precedent on this. So, you know, for the mining company to argue this is a valuable resource, it'll employ a lot of people, it will send revenues to, to the Alaska state government, you know, those are all policy arguments. And those are the kinds of arguments they're making now. But when it comes to whether EPA has the authority to do what it's doing, very limited review, particularly in the Ninth Circuit, of course, which is where this will go. As we always like to say these days, all bets are off if and when the case gets to the Supreme Court. That may be a, a different you know, venue there and a different way of looking at the law. But right now, 
the state of the law is strongly in EPA's favor of saying, given the unique, valuable nature of this watershed and the tremendous impacts that a huge copper mine would have on it, it's up to EPA to decide this is just too much, too great an impact, and we're going to use the authority Congress gave us to say so. Does it make a difference that the Pebble Mine Project is a Canadian-owned company? Not really. There's no bias either in favor of U.S. companies or against non-U.S. companies. So the fact that it's it's Canadian-owned doesn't make a difference. There's another big copper mine in Arizona that's uh, Hud Bay uh, is a Canadian company that wants to mine copper in the Santa Rita Mountains of Arizona. So, no, those... Canadian companies are entitled to come to the United States, acquire ownership in these resources, and then apply for permits. They're subject to U.S. law, of course, but they're entitled to do that. After this litigation over the proposed rule, once the rule becomes final, you'd think that that would be the end, but this doesn't ever seem to end. Right. I mean, as long as that valuable deposit is there, I think you're going to find, you know, these These mining companies play the long game. If they lose this round, they won't necessarily quit or go away forever. They'll wait for another administration to come to power, perhaps, and come back with maybe a modified proposal that has perhaps greater political support than this one. So, no, I like to say it's never over. You know, Yogi Berra used to say it ain't over till it's over. Uh I add add to that, it's never over. These, (laughs) These environmental battles... They literally go on forever. As long as there's this valuable deposit just sitting there, and as long as there's a demand, as there is, for these minerals, you're going to see people trying to mine it. Thanks so much, Pat. That's environmental law professor Pat Parento of the Vermont Law School. You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight. Athletes, actors, artists. But what about the people behind the scenes? You know, the ones who make it all happen. The lighting engineers, the sideline photographers, the caterers. They're small business masterminds. And if there's one thing they have in common, it's making their money work harder. That's why they have a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, where they are now earning a generous 5% annual percentage yield. Yes, 5% APY. Making your money work as hard as you do? That's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. It can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, I'm Ron Krzyzewski, Chairman and CEO of Stiefel. Financial Advisors, if you're not growing your practice, you're losing market share. Stiefel is a growing entrepreneurial, advisor-centric firm built for successful advisors like you. Imagine having the resources of the largest wirehouses and the support of the boutique shops, but none of the bureaucracy to get in the way of you serving your clients. At Stiefel, it's your business, your book, your clients. I always tell the advisors we're recruiting, I want you to come to Steeple and double or triple your business. Most of them laugh and shake their heads, but I'm serious. Don't take it from me. Take it from Steeple's number one finish in J.D. Power's 2023 U.S. Financial Advisor Satisfaction Study. 
So there's a reason why 148 financial advisors joined Stiefel last year. Come join us and find out why Stiefel is the firm where success meets success. Visit www.choosestifel.com. Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE. It was a controversial referendum, but could it be the start of a trend with a broader backlash for progressive district attorneys? San Francisco residents voted to recall Chesa Boudin, a progressive district attorney who sought to reform the city's criminal justice system, but met fierce opposition from critics who painted him as too soft on crime in a city that's been plagued by hate crimes against Asian Americans, drug use on the streets, homelessness, shoplifting, car break-ins. It was a heated campaign that divided Democrats over crime, policing, and public safety reform. In a concession speech, Boudin pointed to voter frustration. Voters were not asked to choose between criminal justice reform and something else. They were given an opportunity to voice their frustration and their outrage, and they took that opportunity. And I want to be very clear about what happened tonight. The right-wing billionaires outspent us three to one. They exploited an environment in which people are appropriately upset. Now the focus is turning to L.A. County's progressive D.A., Charles Gascon, who's also trying to reform criminal justice and is at odds with law enforcement. A recall effort is underway for Gascon as well. Joining me is David Lee, the executive director of the Chinese American Voters Education Committee and a lecturer in political science at San Francisco State University. David, what does it take to get a referendum like this on the ballot in San Francisco? 51,000 signatures were needed to be gathered to place the uh, ballot measure on the San Francisco ballot. There were two separate uh, efforts. One of the efforts failed, and then the second effort succeeded. You know, San Francisco is considered a liberal city, supportive of reforms, and he was obviously elected. What happened? San Francisco voters are well known for being progressive, uh, supporters of progressive causes, of reform, particularly criminal justice reform. Uh, However, the pandemic really changed uh, the political environment in the city. Uh, Namely, crime has been on everybody's mind. It it replaced social justice and uh, many of the uh, progressive concerns as a top concern of uh, voters. And voters were telling us in poll after poll during and after the height of the pandemic that crime was the number one Concern, And that is a marked change in uh, San Francisco voter attitudes brought on by rising anti-Asian hate crimes that have been seen on social media widely, uh, brought on by uh, the explosive growth of uh, homeless encampments, open drug dealing that had uh, taken over the Tenderloin neighborhood in the heart of San Francisco's downtown area by a very highly publicized criminal events that were captured on video, such as the uh, looting of stores uh, in Union Square that was widely 
circulated uh, and in fact uh, nationally televised and which created this sense uh, amongst the electorate that crime was out of control in San Francisco and they could not feel people did not feel safe in their own homes and that was particularly true of Asian Americans who had seen uh, all through the pandemic a rise in anti-Asian hate and uh, crimes targeted at Asian Americans. So to answer your question, the voter attitudes had changed dramatically during the pandemic. Did he refuse to prosecute certain crimes? I mean, was his tenure one that possibly led to more crime or was he unfairly blamed for the spike in crime? Well, I think all of the above. (laughs) I think all of the above has happened in this case where uh, absolutely a a case can be made that Chester Boudin was unfairly uh, blamed for many of the failures in our criminal justice system and in crime prevention that, that voters were angry about, particularly in the Asian American community given that the criminal justice system is more than one man or one office. It is the courts, it's the San Francisco Police Department, it is the mayor. There are many components to the criminal justice system, and uh, I think a case can be made. And we shall see in the next six months whether it was uh, unfair to blame all these ills on one person. We're going to have a new district attorney in a very short order appointed by Mayor San Francisco, and we will see in the next six months if there's going to be any change in what the voters are seeing. So number one, yes, a case can be made that he was unfairly targeted. However, it is also true that there have been very high-profile cases where uh, Chester Boudin's office was seen as failing to act, particularly in the cases of anti-Asian hate and of failure to punish or to hold responsible, accountable criminals who committed atrocious acts against Asian Americans. And I think a recent story in the San Francisco Standard showed that he had failed to charge the majority, the vast majority of anti-Asian hate cases with actually a hate crime, which I think a lot of Asian Americans were pretty confounded by. Why wasn't this done? I mean, it's pretty surprising after only a few years in office that 60 percent of voters voted to recall him. And you also had the recall last year for the governor of California. Are these recalls the work of a particular conservative group, you know, targeting liberals? I think it's unrelated. First of all, the recall of the governor was a statewide effort, completely different and separate from what we saw with the recall effort against Chesa Boudin, different players. Chesa Boudin's recall was largely local in San Francisco, heavily supported by the Asian American community, whereas the statewide recall against the governor was driven by other actors and other players and other issues. And I think it would be incorrect to 
say that they were part of the same force. I would say, however, that the recall against Chesapeake-Bedean was very much very similar to the recall of three San Francisco school board members, which took place just a few months ago in February, where three sitting school board members were recalled through a petition process, largely driven and supported by the Asian American community. Asian American voters voted at a much higher rate in that election than the city as a whole. And there was uh, a concerted effort uh, to get out and turn out Asian American voters for uh, the recall of those school board members. And looking at the data today, it looks like many of those same voters, those same precincts, came out and voted in favor of the recall of Chesa Boudin. What so was... I think there is a closer linkage between those two recall, local recall efforts than the uh, gubernatorial recall that happened uh, last year. Why were the school board members recalled? Uh, the three school board members were recalled uh, because of uh, what many Asian American voters felt was a failure of the school board to act on reopening the schools, getting students back into classrooms, and then very much so the Lowell, the case of Lowell admissions, where uh, Lowell High School is our high-achieving, very well-known performance, academic performance uh, high school in San Francisco. And uh, the school board changed the admissions process to no longer require admissions tests. And that caused great segments of the Asian American community to rise up and to demand a recall of the school board members. So Los Angeles voters advanced a billionaire, Rick Caruso, to a runoff for mayor after he made public safety a central part of his campaign. So are we seeing this as a broader narrative? Safety? I think crime has risen to the top of uh, voter concerns. I think that it's happening in Democratic strongholds like uh, Los Angeles and San Francisco. I think it it demonstrates really a mood of anger and of urgency that voters are demanding from their city officials, from their their officials, their leadership to do something about crime and homelessness, which is closely linked to how, how voters feel about crime, that those two issues need to be addressed. And uh, voters are tired of the excuses and they want change. There is deep anger. When you have two recall elections in San Francisco, three recalls, if you include the the governor recall, uh, in just a matter of a few months, the electorate is angry. That's why you have recall elections. And the fact that there were two successful recalls in San Francisco in a row in a matter of months when Uh, The previous 25 or 30 years, we never even saw a recall make it onto the ballot, let alone win, pass, I think speaks to the amount of anger that voters are feeling and uh, the failure of City Hall and of our uh, elected officials um, and the political establishment to listen 
to the concerns of everyday voters. And that's what you saw, what you saw in this recall election. I mean, we've seen progressive prosecutors elected in cities like New York, Philadelphia and Chicago. And I know that at least in New York, where I live, there was a backlash from the very beginning of Alvin Bragg's tenure over his policies to downgrade or not prosecute certain crime. And you had recently the mayor, Eric Adams, saying that no one takes criminal justice seriously. But, of course, in New York, we don't have the ability to recall a prosecutor. Yes. Well, and, and I will say that in San Francisco, on the same ballot as the recall of Chester Boudin, there was a ballot measure uh, placed on the on the ballot by the Board of Supervisors, members of the Board of Supervisors, that uh, would have changed the recall process in San Francisco that would have uh, disallowed the two recalls had it been in place. And it failed soundly. So voters not only voted in favor of the recall of the uh, district attorney, they voted overwhelmingly against the ballot measure that would have reformed the recall process uh, making it impossible um, for the two recalls that have happened to happen. So I, I think voters are demanding uh, that they have they retain that power of recall and demanding the opportunity to keep our politicians accountable. For the DA, at least, law and order is the definition to me of the role of the DA. Do you think this is the beginning of a backlash against progressive prosecutors? I think it's the beginning of uh, voters demanding accountability. Uh, And as I've said, the district attorney, one person who was district attorney, uh, Chester Boudin, is now recalled, and voters are, are looking for improvement. If we do not see a change in the next six months, don't be surprised if voters will be looking at the mayor and at other leaders at City Hall as to why changes did not happen, uh, especially since the mayor uh, picked the replacements for the school board and the district attorney. So now all eyes are on the mayor and people uh, who have voted uh, want accountability. I think that is the message that is being sent loud and clear to elected officials all across the country, voters demand accountability in their elected leaders. Was there tension or conflict between Boudin and the mayor? Because in New York, there's definitely tension between Bragg and the mayor. Uh, yes, absolutely. There, there is tension. Uh, there have been uh, a publicly uh, reported that's between the two, but now he's been removed from office. So, and the mayor will appoint the replacement. So, um, if things don't change, the mayor will own criminal justice reform uh, in San Francisco, and voters will be looking at her for uh, accountability. Any final thoughts? Well, I think also I would say the other unique. Thing that happened in San Francisco was the rise of Chinese and Asian American voters. Chinese and Asian American voters in San Francisco have become a political force uh, in the last six months like I've never 
seen it before. Not only are they reaching critical mass, they're over 20% of the registered voters, and when they actually turn out and vote, they're as much as 25% of all votes cast, which really make a big difference in elections. And the fact that the Democratic establishment and elected leadership overwhelmingly opposed the recall of the district attorney, and yet this constituency rose up and defeated the establishment and passed the recall, I think is a wake-up call for the entire political establishment of San Francisco. And people are paying attention now to Asian American voters. It is a political earthquake in this city. Thanks, David. That's David Lee, Executive Director of the Chinese American Voters Education Committee. And that's it for this edition of the Bloomberg Law Show. You're listening to Bloomberg. It can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Carter Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com.